So uh, good morning again. It's good to see everyone today. So uh, we are continuing. We started last week our new series, God's Wealth, Abundance and Wisdom. And uh, we're continuing this uh, series today. We're doing a deep dive. It's an eight-week series. We're doing a deep dive into the Bible's teaching and the Bible's kind of ancient wisdom in terms of how to think about our money, our possessions, and then the effect that that has on us and our own satisfaction and happiness uh, related to uh, those things. So today we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. Um, We have free Bibles in our pew, so please take it and keep it. It will come up on the screen as well. You know, we're swimming in a materialistic culture. We live in the most affluent culture that has ever existed in human history. Everyone has a flat screen TV. I was thinking, I made that point last week about flat screen TVs, and I thought to myself, younger people are going to think, well, what kind of other TVs are there? <laughs> I, I realized that when I, I was thinking about that this week. Well, how, and then I was thinking, like, actually, I had a black and white TV when I was a kid. I re- there were color TVs as well, but I, had, I got it from my dad, I think, so it was his. So anyway... Um, but I did, I did actually, short period of time, have a black and white TV. There you go. I'm really still very young, though. It's weird how that, how that happened. Uh, anyway, um, even, even our homeless population, typically people will have smart devices or cell phones. Um, we struggle with, you know, now obesity is a bigger problem than hunger. Uh, we're, we're a culture of excess, of, of more, of extravagance, and yet we're so dissatisfied. Those things have not satisfied us. Those things have not helped us, uh, as we would presume that they should hopefully help us. Um, Jesus said more about the subject of money than he did about prayer and faith combined, because people have ruined their lives over money. 64% of Americans, in fact, have never asked for any financial advice. We are in danger of being blind to our own dysfunctions and our own faulty thinking related to money. So last week, we started off looking at grow income. Uh, Let's put those weeks back up again, actually, real quick. We started off with with, uh, grow income last week. And if you missed that, that's on our YouTube channel. That's on iTunes podcast. And uh, make sure if you're not following those things, make sure you subscribe to that. Sign up for our weekly email update that goes out that summarizes our church service and all the different things we're doing uh, to stay in the loop of information. But uh, we looked at a biblical approach to why some people might need to think about increasing their income and how to go about doing that. So that's uh, last week. And then today we're looking at uh, find contentment. Next week will be a big one, really big one, eliminate debt. There's a lot of people, a lot of us are struggling uh, with debt, how we think about debt taking, our willingness to even take on more debt, how we use credit cards, how we think about all these different things. Uh, that's going to be a big one. Um, then manage expense, share resource, practice deliberately, invest wisely, and enjoy rewards. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to be doing a really big deep dive into all of this. Let's pray and then let's read the scripture. Jesus, help us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you want to help us and you want to transform us and you want to set us free from our slavery to either the love of money or the security that we place in the possessions that we have or our striving for more, whatever it might be, the comparisons that we make between us and others. God set us free from those traps and those vices and help us to live in the joy of our relationship with you and the joy of our relationship with each other. Help us to be generous people, people who uh, can live with an open hand, who are not fearful about the future, 
but are living for your purposes first and foremost. We pray it in Jesus' name. And I pray for all those today who don't know you, who don't yet believe in you, show them the way. Today, let them see the way. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter four, verses 10 through 20. Apostle Paul says this. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, uh, you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me, who strengthens me, or who gives me strength. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. That would <laughs> be unfortunate to be the Thessalonians, be like, oops, <laughs> got called out here. <laughs> Verse 17, uh, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So Apostle Paul, early Christian leader. He actually hated Christians originally and then had an amazing salvation experience, came to believe in Jesus. He was one of the early church leaders. He would start and strengthen churches. He'd move around different places, starting and strengthening churches. And then he would write letters to these churches. So the second, kind of the last part of the Bible here is just a kind of a collection of letters from different early Christian leaders. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of them. And uh, he's writing here to um, these Christians, he calls them Philippians. That's what the book is called. It's called Philippians because they live in a place called Philippi. And so if, he, if we were, this was today, it'd be getting a letter, you know, to the, the Chicago Christians because we live in Chicago. And uh, Paul is, is writing to them um, to thank them for their financial generosity towards him. They have been sending him money. And instead of saying, hey, I'm really re so relieved that you sent me some cash. Just really needed some cash. Really super relieved that you sent me some. Thanks for that. Instead of that, Paul is talking about that really the joy of his salvation is, is, is them, is their partnership with him, their generosity towards him, their concern for him, that even other, no other churches, even churches he was at weren't helping him, but not the Philippians. Man, the Philippians, that's the joy that, that he has. It's not what he can get from them, but in the relationship and just the concern, the fact that they even wanted to do this, the fact that they thought to do this, 
was a, it's a powerful, what a, what a great point for us, massive point. Apostle Paul is modeling something here, explaining something here. Right at the end of this, there's just a four-chapter letter to the, to the Philippians, and he's discussed all of the kind of theological things and practical things about living the Christian life. And at the end of the letter, he's like, I just want to say thanks so much for your commitment, your concern. What a big point that life in God, it's not about, it's not about possessions, it's about people. It's not about revenue. It's about relationships. It's not what we can get out, extract from people or get out of this life. It's about the joy of knowing God and knowing others and being included and being part of God's family, being on God's mission together. Now, in stark contrast, contrast to this, this is the Bible's view that it wants us to have of life and of money and possessions, how we think about the, the, the true importance of things in our lives. In contrast to that, we, we, can be, we can be blind to this, but the world has us, like I said, swimming in materialism. And so we, will tend, we, we can fall into patterns or language even that doesn't quite communicate this heart that we're seeing from the Apostle Paul here. So let me give you an example of this. We can be so surrounded by this that we don't even, it's right in front of us and we don't even see how we do it. This happens to me, this happens to all of us, happens to every single one of us, that we'll, we'll frame relationships and interactions and people in terminology that's not really very relational. So we might say, we, we're, using term, we're borrowing terminology from the world perhaps. So we might even say, you know, that person, what an asset. Right? See, she said that about me. I know it. That's what's going on here. No, he's an asset. Right? Or, oh, this friendship, I'm going to invest a bit more in that one. That person, she, she's a real liability. That guy, that guy, he's taxing. Man. This, this, this person, what a fraud. What a fraud. This, or that guy, he, he deserves a lot of credit. You've got to give that guy a lot of credit. Or what about, what about this? Um, that that um, executive board, that needs a lot more equity. Or even, have you met my partner? So what we're doing is we're using financial, we, we tend to use financial categories to describe relationships. It's not very warm. It's not very relational. It's not very familial. In fact, it's transactional. We tend to view relationships in transactional ways. We tend to use money to judge and to define how we think about other people and how we treat other people and how we to relate to other people. It's a trap. We're swimming in a culture of this and we don't even see it. We do it all the time. We do it constantly. And the danger is, is that we're we're really in danger of weakening our relationships because this is how we, we view people as something to what we can extract from them, what they provide to us, how they benefit us, how they can move our lives forward rather than thinking about how can I bless other people and serve other people and pour my life out for other people, which is the way of Jesus, the way of Scripture. So we're in danger of that. And Paul wants to make it very clear to the Philippians that there's no confusion, no confusion. So in verse, what does he say in verse 17? He says, not that I seek the gift. And he's talking about the financial. I'm not, not that I seek the gift. I, I seek, um, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And even before that, in verse 11, he has said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, 
for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he wants to be super, super clear that his contentment in life is not connected to the things that he gets from other people. He wants to be super, super clear because it can be mis- we, can, we can easily misinterpret this or e- easily think that, well, you know, my, my stage in life, my, my state in life or my security in life is based on what, what I get and my possessions and the financial security I might, I might have. Apostle Paul wants to be super clear. No, he's not content based on that. He's content and he's, he's, he's full of joy and satisfaction based on the relationship he has with them in the gospel, the relationship he has uh, with God and with Christ as well. And what's really cool about this is that he says, I have learned. He says, specifically, he says, I've learned the secret. It's not a true, it's not like a Gnostic secret, like, like secret, secret knowledge. It's, um, it's an open secret, but it's a secret because we're blind to it. But he says, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, what's cool about this is... It's something, it, makes us, it points out, very ob- should be obvious, contentment is something that's not automatic. It has to be learned, right? I think we could, we could all agree with that. Contentment is not something natural. It doesn't come naturally to the human heart. It has to be learned. But the other cool thing it points out is this, is that it can be learned. Apostle Paul was a very ambitious person before he became a Christian, striving for all kinds of things. And he said if he could boast in his own flesh and boast in his own humanity, he had all these things he could boast about, all these different things he could boast about. And but he's, he, even he has learned the secret of being content. That means we can also learn the secret of being content. Here's what I want you to do. Gra- grab out that Connect card that Cole talked about. Grab out that Connect card. Everyone grab out this. You receive this. Grab this. Grab your pen. And on the back of this, here's what I want you to do. It's for everyone. Grab out this card. You've got a comment section on the back here. Here's what I want you to do today. I want you to get this card for everyone. Does everyone have it? Do I hear that? Anyone? Anyone want to join me in making sounds with their card? Okay. Right in the comment section here, I can learn to be content. It's in the Bible. Apostle Paul did it. Right down today, I can learn to be content. Now, we've all struggled with, at some point or another, if we haven't, we will, but stress, anxiety, fear, uncertainty, insecurity, comparison, whatever it might be, whatever we're experiencing, all the negative lows that we have in our lives, those things tend to come about really because of our circumstances, right? Now, sometimes it can come about because of irrational fears. Maybe we struggle with irrational fears. But, but typically, we're, we're struggling in life because our desires aren't matching our reality. Our circumstances don't quite line up the way that we want them to, to line up. And so what happens is we, we have to decouple from that. We have to learn that my sense of contentment within myself my sense of security should not be attached to external things. Have you heard of this phrase before? The locus of control. Anyone heard of this phrase before? The locus of control. You've heard of that phrase before? The, the, whoa, there you go. That's one of them. You're stealing all my content here, Amanda. That's all right. <laughs> the locus of control. This, this, this phrase, so locus meaning location. So the locus of control, this is the idea that where somebody tends to place um, the responsibility for the outcomes in their life. 
That's one way to, to, to describe it or think about it. The locus of control. So let, let me put it like this, that when we're, when we're, we're less mature, when we're, we're younger, especially, and we're trying to grow, and you can, if you don't learn it, then I guess you can be old and still not learn this, but what we tend to do is we tend to project the locus of control into the world. So you tend to say, well, my life is just completely controlled externally. I'm a victim of my circumstances. The things that happen to me define who I am or what I have. Or, and it's, it's, I, you know, I take, you know, basically blame. Everything's out there. All the problems are out there. And I'm just a victim of all these things in my life. That means you have an external locus of control. That, and and pay it, it's easy to start thinking about people that we might know and think, well, yeah, that person's always blaming other people. Or not, you know, whatever. Don't do that. Think about yourself. Think about where's my locus of control? Is it external? The other option is that it can be internal. And as you grow and mature, you start to realize in life, you start to realize, oh, wait a second. I'm actually, I bear some responsibility for the things in my life, for some of the outcomes in my life, how I acted, how I reacted. Even my inaction has caught, caused and brought about even my own internal sense of emotional security. I am alone responsible for that. And so I have to move my locus of control from being just blaming the world and blaming everyone else. And if I just had, if this person would just do this, or I just had this situation or had this, then my life would be okay. We, it moves internally where you realize, oh, actually I bear some responsibility here in terms of how I think and how I act and how I've responded or how preparations I need to make for certain things in my life. Now, a Christian actually has another level here where you end up placing your, the locus of control in God and this transforms both external and internal uh, concepts of this, that you realize rather than blaming the things that are outside of your control and blaming other people or blaming the world, you actually realize God's hand is at work all the time in all things in life. And like Joseph in the Old Testament, when he says what to his brothers, what you intended, who saved him, you know, sold him into slavery, where he says to them, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. So my locus of control is in the mighty hand of God that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. That's the most mature mindset you could have. So there's kind of three steps to this, right? External locus of control, internal locus of control where you kind of almost blame yourself for everything. That's unhealthy. The best way is locus of control in God. So God is in control of all the circumstances in my life, but also then then the mistakes I've made, the responsibilities I need to take, instead of just blaming myself for those things, because my locus of control is in God, what I, what I realize is, I realize those faults and failings don't define me. There's actually redemption for me through Jesus. I've got to own up to them because that's part of being a Christian, right? Is repentance. It's, repentance is saying, it's holding your hand up and said, I did that. Yep, and, and I did that too. You know what, and, and, I, and I had that attitude as well. And I said that, yes, I did that. And I took that action and I did that, yes. And that, those things were, were wrong. I'm not blaming, well, it was because of this person or if this situation had been different or if this had been different, or if, I'd, if this had happened, then I wouldn't have done those things. It's, it's moving beyond that and saying, no, this is what I've done. But, but the locus, locus of control being in God is to recognize, well, well only God can solve that. Only, only God can overcome my shortcomings and my failings in the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. For me, that's the power of it, to be redeemed in that way. So this, this is the secret of contentment here is that we, we think that contentment is feeling relaxed. I'm content, oh, whew, man, just feel great, feel content. <laughs> just, it's all over me. I'm just washed with contentment. That's not really contentment, right? True biblical contentment because, you know, there can be moments of the way you feel relaxed. Being relaxed is a whole different situation. 
right? Where you just, you got really, you know, the pressures in life, they're, they're just off for a bit, right? Where you're just like, I'm just sitting on a beach, sipping a fancy drink and life feels good right now. But that's not real life. Real life is full of stress. And no matter what happens, you might have moments of feeling relaxed, but then you're gonna have moments of feeling stressed. There's no way to avoid it. So true contentment is not the absence of stress. True contentment is learning to master our internal feelings and our internal desires to bring them into alignment with God's truth. That's true contentment. So we might, and, and, and contentment typically relates to money and possessions. You can relate it to other things as well. Because we might have a holy discontent. You have a holy discontent in terms of, I want certain things in my life to be better. I want to strive towards certain things being better. That's a holy discontent. Uh, but, but typically when we're talking about being a wrongful discontentedness is based in a, 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 a craving and a hunger, a striving for really putting our, our hope and our satisfaction in things that really are never gonna satisfy us in the first place. So it's like, I've got this dream job I want and, and I'm just, I'm not satisfied, not happy unless I get it. And a contented person who's learned the secret that Paul has learned will say, oh, it's okay. So okay. you know, I can work towards something else, but it's okay if I don't get that. I'm content in God. Or, or I, I wanna you know, a different home or a different location or I want to travel or more experiences or whatever it might be, somebody who's learned the secret can say, it's all right to, to want to strive towards some things, but if I don't get them, I'm satisfied. I, see, contentment is an inner, inner stability that, that's there no matter what's happening on the outside. It's not determined by other people or external situations. It's something that God has changed in here. And it's so tempting to want to be given solutions or given answers or given things to do that will solve these problems for us or, or make us feel better. Or we, and, we, and we have lots of, you know, we're a very therapeutic culture, so we tend to think in therapeutic ways or I want to follow patterns of ways and ideas that will make me feel better. And that's, there's, some of that stuff is helpful, but some of it isn't. The answer from the Bible is, is that you find strength in Christ. Find strength in Christ. And so actually finding strength in Christ is amazing because your circumstances can be getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And your sense of inner stability can actually get stronger and stronger and stronger through every adversity you face. It's amazing. This is the secret. This is the secret here. Uh, in verse, well, let's read it again, verse 13, just to make sure I'm not messing it up. I already made one mistake today. I tend to not make any mistakes every day of my life. Normally it's perfect. <laughs> it's an unusual day. All right, verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me, sorry, who strengthens me or who gives me strength. I think I, I grew up reading the NIV version of the Bible. So sometimes some NIV verses are still burned in my head. This is ESV, but it's similar. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, um, in these verses, and actually the next verse as well, actually, let me read verse 12. It says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, so Paul's talking about a spectrum here. And 
What he's saying is, he's saying that on, on the one hand, he knows exactly what it's like to uh, be brought low, to have hunger and to be in need. That's, that's the, the, the lacking, the, the, the really difficult stuff that we all want to avoid. <laughs> it's very stressful, we don't like that. He says, he says, I know exactly what it's like to be in that situation and I, know what it's, and I also have learned how to be satisfied in that situation, to be contented. And on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, he then he, he uses these words. He says, I know what it's like to abound and to have plenty and to have an abundance. And I also know what it's like to be satisfied in that situation as well. And here's the conundrum for us is we think those two things are different. We think having lack and having plenty are different situations. We think, oh, I'm contented if I have enough, if I have enough control or enough predictability in my life, then I can be contented. That's a shallow understanding. There's a a much deeper understanding of of contentedness because here's here's the temptation. There's there's a couple of different temptations of lacking or having plenty. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being happy in both. We can use, you might say, oh, if I'm in lack, that's an opportunity for, I can leverage that and, and that can be seen as being virtuous somehow. Or if I have plenty, I can leverage that somehow, and that can be seen as being virtuous somehow. And so, so lack or plenty become mechanisms of how to create a self-image. They both, that these are the temptations. They both become mechanisms of how can I create a self-image for myself. A self-image for myself. I allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> so it's, not, it's just an opportunity. So I, I'm in lack. I'm lacking. Oh, this, is, this is an opportunity. I can present myself, I can tell a story of myself to the world. Or I have a lot. Wow, aren't I special? I got a lot. I can present a story of myself to the world. And this reveals the pitfall of both sides of the contentment spectrum here. The first side is, the, is called aestheticism. Aestheticism. And this is the idea that our piety or our, um, maybe the simplicity of our lives or our poverty even is maturity. I want to, I'm going to curate my life in such a way that I'm going, to, I'm going to portray that the conveniences of life and the big wonderful things of life are a distraction and they're evil and sinful and I am a better person because I avoid them. That is not living in satisfaction. That's not contentment. That's false contentment. Let me tell you briefly, I'm hesitant to do this, but let me tell you briefly a a story about Mother Teresa. I have great respect for her and a, lots of admiration, a very selfless person in many regards. But one story I read several years ago about her, that she was donated an orphanage and her ministry was an amazing ministry. She you know, did amazing things for people. They were donated this, this orphanage and it was really um, uh, a very uh, generous a donation and when they took a look at the facility, you know, it had uh, hot running water and it, had ca- it was carpeted. And a lot of the facilities they had um, were, were very mediocre compared to this. And so they, they'd been given this amazing orphanage. She took, took a look around and she decided that this, the, this was too extravagant. These things were too much to have. And so she disconnected the hot water supply and tore up all the carpets and threw them, threw them away. And... The thinking is that there's something more spiritual about this. And you, you almost feel bad disagreeing with somebody of, of her stature. Because <laughs> who am I? And what do I know? And have I done the great things? And was I as selfless as, as she was? Uh, the answer is no. 
But on this point, this is one of the dangers that our own, our own self-denial can really actually become something that just reinforces our own ego or reinforces the, own, the self-image that we create, that we're curating for the world, that we want the world to see our virtue. This is an opportunity to see the virtue rather than saying, because contentment would be to receive and say, wow, hot water, running hot water, what a wonderful gift. I'm going to be satisfied in that. Nice carpets, what a wonderful gift. I'm going to be grateful for that. That's contentment. Not stripping it out and getting rid of it. Now Jesus, people say, well, didn't Jesus live a simple life? Yes, Jesus lived a simple life. But you know what he also did? He made the best wine. Right? What happened at the wedding when he turned the water into wine? It was the most costly, most extravagant wine that, that he made. What happened when the woman with the perfume came and, and anointed his feet with this costly perfume and they were criticized, said, oh, this money could have been used for the poor. Just always pay attention to that when people are using, they, they leverage the poor for their own points or their own whatever, their own virtue. And they say, oh, this is terrible. This could have been used for the poor. Anyone, anytime anyone says that, they'd be like, hey, what are you doing for the poor? Let's, ask, let's, let's reflect the mirror on you a little bit here. What are you doing for the poor? But what did Jesus do? Jesus did not criticize her for, for pouring out this costly perfume on, on him and anointing his feet with it. He, he received the worship. The magi that showed up at Jesus' birth, what did they bring? They brought costly gifts that his family received. That's a good start right there. Jesus started off with some gifts worthy of a king. The temptation for us, if we lack things, is that we can turn it into a virtue story of our own piety. And we've fallen into the temptation of that. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is materialism. And we know a lot about this one. This is, this is not a problem for us. We know a lot about materialism. There's a, a bumper sticker. We have a little picture here of this bumper sticker. Uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen that bumper sticker around anywhere? He who dies with the most toys wins. The average American spends six hours a week shopping, but only 40 minutes playing with their kids. 90% of divorces, in 90% of divorces, people say that stress over money was one of the biggest contributing factors to their divorce. Elite wealthy people, they're pretty honest about this. They're pretty honest about the trappings of materialism. So John Rockefeller says this. He says, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford said this. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Andrew Carnegie said this. He said, millionaires seldom smile. You can, you can track somebody's wealth. As their wealth increases, their lifespan decreases. There's a connection between the more somebody uses the terms I, me, mine, my, whatever, all those different personalized terms, the greater chance they have of having a heart attack. Materialism literally kills us. It kills us. Success in, 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 in our society, in our life, and our day and age is measured by the accumulation of things, getting things, or having more, or being comfortable, or those, that, 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 that desire for things, and we don't realize it makes us blind to our spiritual poverty. Actually, asceticism and materialism can both make us blind to our true spiritual poverty. 
And the Apostle Paul is saying, I've navigated both of these temptations. I've been tempted. I've been tempted to use both to create a self-image. I've been tempted to be controlled by both. And I found a way through to be satisfied in either situation. And he, he says that, I mean, I read it, I'll read it again, verse 13, the most famous verse, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength or strengthens me. This is a very famous uh, verse. Athletes, some athletes, Christian athletes will paint this on their faces. You've seen this in football games before. Did the apostle Paul write this verse because he actually believed that God would allow him to score more points than his opposing team. Was that the reason for this verse? What do we think? Let's take a poll today. Show of hands, anyone? What do we think? Is this the reason why? In actual fact, here's what's going on here. The Apostle Paul is saying, I have learned the secret. I've learned what life is like when I have hardly anything. And the temptation is, is to be pietous about it or is to be fearful in it. I've learned the secret. I've learned that even in that situation, if I have hardly anything or even nothing, I've learned to say to God, God, I can still do all the things you want me to do because I get my strength from you. Oh, God, I can still, even if I have nothing, I can still live for the purposes and the mission of God because I've got you and you can give me the strength to get through this situation. And then he's saying, I've also learned the dangers of having a lot and, and having being having an abundance and having plenty and the temptation just to feel like, oh, now I'm good, now I'm safe, now I can relax. Phew, phew, that my possessions and finances have given me some contentment. He said, I've learned not to do that. I've learned that if I have a lot of stuff, I've learned to be really open-handed with it and to say, God, well, what is it that you want me to do? How can I live for you? How can I live for your purposes? And how can I use this stuff for your kingdom, for your gospel? I've learned the secret of both ways. Is the Apostle Paul saying, Jesus is going to help me beat my opponents? Every football I kick or every whatever it is I do, I can always beat my opponents. That is a ludicrous way to interpret that verse. The context of this is finance. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It means I can still do everything God wants me to do no matter how much money I have. Whether I have hardly anything or nothing or I have everything you could ever imagine. I can do all the things that God wants me to do because both have their temptations. Both have their temptations. Is that clearer now? Do we understand that verse now? So we can, we can all sit back and laugh. Every time, you, every time you see a Christian athlete who's using this Philippians passage to be like, I can beat my, my opposing team, you'd be like, no, 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 no. That's not that. Maybe you'll beat them, but not, not because of that verse. That's, that's ridiculous. It's, it's being strengthened through Christ. And it's so tempting to want to, to, want to say, or, 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 or to say, you know, like, you know I, I, need, I need something else. I need, you know, give me something practical to do. Give me a step to take. Give me, tell me something to do. Tell me how I can have this level of contentment. Is it, could I, do I just give away all my possessions and then I'll be contented? No, because you might fall into the temptation of having nothing. Do, if I feel contented, well, do, I, do I need to have a certain relationship or a, a certain position or I just need to follow my passions and dreams? And then, Will I then be contented? No, because you might fall into the temptations of materialism on that side. The, the, the key, and, and this is what we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear this. The answer is Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. It's the answer we teach our kids, every, well, which we will be teaching our kids when we restart our children's ministry. But it's, it, the answer is, is my identity is increasingly in Jesus above all. And so the pressures of the world on either side, doesn't matter what's going on, my constant heart response is, 
God, what do you want me to do? How can I live for you? How can I use what I, what I don't have or what I do have? How can I use it all for you? Is to be empowered, empowered by God. Because there's a big difference between being religious and being spiritual. Lots of people can be religious and spiritual. There's a big difference between that and then actually knowing Jesus. When you know Jesus, you know Him. When you actually know Him, you have a relationship with Him. That's power. That's strength. That transforms how you feel about everything in your life. How do we do it? Well, we've we, we got to turn our attention to our inner, inner life. We've got to turn our attention inwards and look inwards. That's why we... We sing songs, right? We sing the truth of God because we want to get those words into us because the, the words and the, the, the teaching of the world is death to us, but the words of Christ are life to us. You know, the thing every person really needs, and most of us never got it, was a mother or a father that says, I love you unconditionally and I'm proud of you and I'm glad I had you. It's the greatest gift any person could ever be given. And if you never had a mother or father that could do that for you, the, the great news is this, is that you have a, a father in heaven. This is our strength. See, we're looking for affirmation in the world. We're looking for affirmation in this person or this thing or this possession or this amount of security or this amount of predictability or this amount of control in my life and we'll never get it because we're tempted to asceticism or we're tempted to materialism. We're tempted in all those ways. We'll never get it. The only way we get it is to receive the love of God, to receive the, the affirmation of Christ over us. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why we teach from the Bible. We're not just here to hype each other up into like good positive feelings. We're here to learn the words from God. Jesus has the words of life and only Jesus has the words of life. As we receive it, we've got to learn to receive it. We've got to learn to read it for ourselves. We've got to learn to sing it. We've got to learn to pray it. Whether you have an abundance or you have nothing, the purpose of life is to serve God every day of our lives. And we're given a promise as we do that, that He'll provide for us. In verse 17 here, Paul makes a promise to them. Is it verse 17? I forgot the verse. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. There's a promise here that there's fruit that's going to increase to your credit. God's, see, we don't need to be friends with Mark Cuban or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. We've got the God of heaven who made those people and gave them their talents and our God is in control of all things. Imagine, imagine a community of people. Just imagine it. Take a second, close your eyes. Imagine a whole community of people who know the secret of being content. Imagine it. Imagine belonging to a group of people who all say, I have learned the secret of being content. If I have nothing, I'm happy because I'm serving God. If I have everything, I'm happy because it doesn't control me because I'm serving God. I've learned, imagine a church family like that. That's what God is building here with us. It's a beautiful thing and it's only through receiving the strength of Christ, the joy of Christ. One of the, 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 the beautiful things that we're called to do and some people struggle with this. They struggle with why do Christians sing so much and why so many songs and it's so boring, I don't get it. 
it's not an intellectual thing as much as it, as it is a spiritual thing. We sing because that's a way of opening up your heart wider to get the affirming words of God, which are the things that we need to live by. I'm proud of you. I love you. I died for you. I want you. When you sing, your heart gets wider, your heart opens up, and that truth, that's the truth we need, that truth comes in, it comes in, and it comes in, and it gets deeper in and deeper in and deeper in, and that's the strength. That's where you get the strength from, from that truth. Isn't that great? Isn't that so good? Let's respond today. When you like and subscribe, this video reaches more people.